Welcome to the Body Wisdom Podcast. I'm your host, Kiara. You can expect new episodes each Wednesday that are educational, inspiring, and honest surrounding various women's health topics, spirituality, and so much more. The Body Wisdom Podcast was brought to life by integrating the physical and emotional body to deepen one's healing journey. Thanks for being here and enjoy the show. Hello, everyone, and welcome to another episode of the Body Wisdom Podcast. I am here with my very special guest, Meg Dahl. Welcome, Meg. How are you today? Hi, I'm feeling good today. It's so nice to be here. Thank you. Oh, my gosh. Yeah, I'm so excited to dive deep into HA recovery, along with eating disorder recovery and how somatics has played a role in all that and also talking about parts work this is something that is a new interest of mine so i'm excited to just bring merge both worlds together because this is something i'm always trying to do (laughs) i feel like in my work um just really bridging the gap between how these modalities can help support recovery of these illnesses um so yeah where where do we begin? Like, um, what led you here? When did everything start for you? What did that look like growing up? Like, give us all the bits and pieces. Wow. Well, (laughs) you did. (laughs) Where to begin? Um, You did mention eating disorder recovery. And so I guess that kind of takes us the farthest back. And I actually experienced my first eating disorder when I was 10 years old. And so I would say that's kind of where my health journey began and where I really started to learn about mental health and mental wellness and emotional wellness and also working with therapists and things. So just understanding my thoughts and my mind in a whole new way and to imagine that that all began at 10 years old, which is 20 years ago is really crazy. But yeah, I had anorexia when I was 10. And I was able to fully recover from that until I relapsed five years later, when my grandpa passed away. So I was in high school. And I would say like, the second time I experienced anorexia, it was definitely a bigger struggle for me. I think just being 15 rather than 10 years old, you have more independence, you know, and I was definitely very much in denial that I was struggling with another eating disorder at the time. But luckily, like my parents were able to recognize the signs that I was struggling again, because I had already battled an eating disorder. And by the final year of my high school, I was in outpatient treatment and working with a team like a psychiatrist, a a brilliant psychologist, and also a dietitian. And she really helped me 
and inspired me to go to university and study dietetics because, you know, she was kind of one of those people in my life where she helped me so much that I was like, okay, if I could at least help one person like she has helped me, then that would be amazing. So I went to university, studied dietetics, and during my university years, I was no longer struggling with anorexia, but it had kind of morphed into something else that I didn't even really know was another eating disorder. But now I think a lot of people have heard about orthorexia and it's such a struggle, like a difficult thing to diagnose, especially like this was like 2010, 2011, 2012, there wasn't a lot of knowledge about orthorexia back then. And it's kind of one of those eating disorders that, you know, kind of fly under the radar in a sense, because our society and diet culture has normalized so many of the behaviors. So like I said, I really didn't realize that I had been struggling with an eating disorder after even recovering from anorexia. But when I was in school studying dietetics, I was eating things like whole eggs and full fat cheese and butter and ghee. And when I was studying dietetics, we would do like case studies and stuff like that. And we would be recommending like low fat cheese to our clients, our fake clients. And <laughs> I am one of those people that like if something doesn't feel in alignment for me and if it's not in alignment with like what I'm doing and my beliefs and things like that, I have a really hard time following through with it. So I completed my degree in dietetics, but I decided I didn't want to do my internship and become a dietitian. I actually started studying holistic nutrition instead. And I think, you know, just learning how food actually could support my body and the function of my body completely changed the game for me. And that's really where I started to overcome those orthorexic behaviors and tendencies and things. And I would say that's really where like true rec recovery really started to take place for me. So it's honestly been such a long <laughs> journey. Like that's back in 2014. And you mentioned somatics and parts work and those pieces of my recovery really didn't come into play until I was going through HA recovery because even though I had recovered from eating disorders I always like to say there was still like these little lingering parts within me that were holding on to things that I didn't want to be holding on to anymore. So that's really where that somatics and the parts where it came into my healing journey. Mm, thank you for taking us there. I feel like yeah. I was right there with you. <laughs> oh man, for those who don't know what orthorexia is, that may be a new term. Would you not, would you mind like kind of just going a little bit deeper with that and what that looks like? Yeah, for sure. So basically it's a obsession with health 
and um, a certain way of eating for a lot of people, it's like a healthy foods or like pure, clean, natural type of foods. And it obviously, like any eating disorder, it presents differently for people, but basically that's like what orthorexia is. And that's also why I said it really can fly under the radar for so many people. Um, and honestly, that's what happened to me. Like I said, you know, I really didn't realize that I was dealing with something, but my food rules and behaviors around food really started to impact my life in not a positive way. And that's when I knew that I was definitely dealing with something like I didn't have a healthy, normal relationship with food, you know? And were those behaviors and patterns and the orthorexia, like the obsession with the health was that also, I'm just, I'm curious as I feel like that was me in my college years. Mm-hmm. And for me, there was like this huge fear, like underneath all of it. <laughs> yeah. Huge fear, huge fear of so many foods and so much fear around like my body too. Like what would happen to my body if I yeah. ate certain foods, that sort of thing. Yeah. Like literally crippling fear every single day. Yeah. Yeah. I would not want to go out anywhere. Mm -hmm. I would be at a family function. I would bring my own food, even if there was something there that I could eat, like had zero trust in anything else other than like what I prepared. And it really wasn't until I studied nutrition and it wasn't until I like, really started doing the healing work myself that I was then able to go out to eat in restaurants and not have to like hide in a corner and be eating my own food. Mm-hmm. And it's so liberating. And I'm just curious how the parts were like, what, what did that look like? Like a kind of unpacking that fear, like what part of you was expressing itself? Yeah, that's such a great question. I mean, there was so many different parts of me involved, right? Um, I think also going back to when that eating disorder actually started. So because like I said, that anorexia actually morphed into a different eating disorder, right? And so I really went back to that 15-year-old self, right? That 15-year-old version of me who had been fully recovered for like five years and got curious about what beliefs or something that she decided around the time that I started struggling again. So that was something that really helped me. I actually went through um, like a certified spiritual coaching institute to become a certified spiritual coach. And this is where I learned about self-forgiveness and how we create these misunderstandings about ourselves or about life when we experience certain situations. Like you and I could have been growing up in the exact same house, having these same experiences, right? Or even think, I don't have any siblings, but you know, for our listeners, you can be growing up in a house with your siblings and kind of having these same 
experiences on a daily basis and stuff like that, but you both can leave the house with two totally different understandings of what actually happened, right? And so I went back around the time of my grandpa's death, because like I said, I had always kind of saw that as that turning point for me from being recovered to struggling again. And around that time, I just, I got curious, okay, what misunderstanding or what belief did I and start believing about myself or about life. And one of my beliefs was, okay, so my grandpa had passed away. So I believed that I was sad. Obviously, I was very sad about his death and his passing and losing someone that I love so deeply. And part of me believed that in order for other people to realize that I was sad, I didn't deserve to eat like I couldn't eat because if I ate people would know like wouldn't know I'm sad and so it wasn't a conscious decision of mine but it was way back in the subconscious and I didn't even realize that I had believed that but because that happened in that moment there was a part of me that carried that with me for so many years right so now like fast forwarding to like 2018 2017 i'm starting to realize whoa i was still carrying this belief that i'm sad and i'm not like allowed to fully like allow myself to eat because then people wouldn't think I'm sad you know and when I'm not in that event anymore I'm not sad anymore right so I don't need to continue to live by that misunderstanding so that's where a lot of my self-forgiveness work came in but also the parts work so specifically you asked about parts work for me and how that kind of showed up in my recovery and if anyone's listening to this episode that has gone through eating disorder recovery before they'll know what i'm talking about but like usually when you're working with a psychologist or a counselor that is you know familiar with eating disorders we kind of like see this eating disorder as a separate thing that we're dealing with, right? It's like, we're always referring to it as the eating disorder. And as I was going through eating disorder recovery, like you start to kind of see the eating disorder as this big, bad, like villain, right? Trying to get you not to eat and stuff like that. Like you're never supposed to um, listen to the eating disorder voice, that sort of thing, right? So it's all about kind of like pushing the eating disorder away and fighting the eating disorder. And okay, that got me to a certain part in my recovery, right? It was, it allowed me to deny those voices that weren't being supportive to me at the time, deny those voices that were telling me not to eat, right? So in ways, sure, it was supportive, But what really clicked was when I started to see it actually as a part of me, like those feelings, those like 
full body feelings, like that somatic experience, right? Um, when I started to recognize that, oh, wow, maybe instead of seeing like, oh, that's the big bad eating disorder rearing its head again, right? I started to actually view it as like this part of me, like we said, that was really scared right? Or a part of me, a big part of my eating disorder was actually lack of self-trust. So I started seeing that every time I felt these certain sensations in my body that, oh, wow, that's that part of me that doesn't trust myself, right? Mm -hmm. So yeah, it was, it, it totally changed recovery for me, which is, you know, why I've been studying it and integrating it into my practice with my clients because of my experiences. I do typically work with women who have had food and body image issues over the years. And I just think this approach is just such a game changer, honestly. Oh yeah, absolutely. Oh my gosh. Like everything you just said, like, I'm just like, wow. Um, I'm curious what it looks like turning towards that part. Cause we said, we don't want to look away from that part. Now we're not like abandoning it. We're not saying, Oh no, like, yeah, got to look the other way. What does it look like turning towards it? What kind of process does that look like? Yeah, for me. So like I said, one of those main parts that I had to work with was that part of me that believed that she couldn't trust herself. So part of my process was showing her what trust actually looked like. And, you know, it was, it was scary because there, it was so many years of me not trusting myself, right? Because I believed that I couldn't, I had this part of me that would be taking over showing like basically convincing myself that I couldn't trust myself. But as you and I both know, as we study parts work, right, we have this self within us and the self is like full of life. And I kind of like to think of it as like this pure, like healthy, thriving version of ourselves, right? Like I have that in myself regardless of what I've been through in the past, right? And you have that within yourself. Like we all can tap into that kind of life force energy within ourselves. And so that's what it looked like. So even though I had been allowing that part of me to kind of manage things before, right? Kind of take the reins and be like, no, we're not trusting ourselves. So we're going to do all of these kind of disordered behaviors to turn away from that. I tapped into that part of me that actually knows how to trust myself and gave her the reins and let her kind of do her thing. And by slowly doing that, that's that's honestly like the biggest thing that um, made such a big change for me in my recovery. When I was in the depths of my healing crises, like in 2018, 19, I was kind of like on the merry-go-round of like protocols, supplements, you know, really trying a lot of things to heal my body. And that's kind of when I started learning about like my spirit and starting to dive into these different modalities. And that was just the beginning. We're just starting to scratch the surface. 
And one of the things that was really expressing itself was this body image um, issue. I would avoid mirrors. I would avoid like just any like activation. And I've also worked with um, women who are struggling with eating disorders as well. And something that they've told me is that they're, and you know, this, I think it can serve, like you said, like it, it took you to this part of your healing journey. Um, and some of the advice that was given was to turn all mirrors around so mm-hmm. that the activation doesn't happen. And so you're basically avoiding everything. And so I guess like, yes, that can serve. And <laughs> I love saying yes. And now it's like my favorite. Yes. yes and <laughs> I'm here for it. Is that like perpetuating the the villain, (laughs) you know, like giving it more power in a sense? Yeah, I was going through eating disorder recovery. Like this was when I was like 10 years old going through it for the first time. And I remember a psychologist telling my parents, just flip all the mirrors around, Mm -hmm. like put blankets over the mirrors, hide all the mirrors. And I remember coming home with my parents and like, they proposed that idea to me, you know, like, do you feel like this is a good idea? And I thought in no shade to anyone who has done this through their recovery, because I can see like, obviously that that can serve a purpose if it feels right for you. But for me at that time, I just couldn't wrap my head around how that was going to help me, right? Like avoiding something that eventually I'm going to need to face, right? Like it's not, I like my clients and I, we talk about our thoughts and our emotions all the time. And the, the goal is not to get rid of our thoughts and our emotions. It's about creating a new relationship to our thoughts and our emotions, right? And so you can't get rid of your reflection ever, right? Like that's impossible. You can't just live the rest of your life without seeing yourself ever again. You can't get rid of your body while you're on this earth living your life. And so it's about creating a new relationship with your body, right? It takes a lot of work. It takes a lot of healing and a lot of support. Honestly, I think this is why you and I do the work that we do because you and I couldn't have recovered and gone through the stuff that we've recovered from all on our own right? We've worked with so many different practitioners and done so many different types of healing. (laughs) And so I guess that's kind of my thoughts on the whole, like covering up the mirror thing. If it feels like that's going to serve you, if that feels right for you, then go for it. But my opinion personally, and what has helped me is not avoiding what's giving me the issues, but learning how to create a new relationship with what I think is giving me the issue. Yes. Yeah. That was beautiful. And, um, I think titration is also really important too. Like for someone who hasn't been able to look at themselves in the mirror, should they just like strip naked and like look at themselves (laughs) in the mirror, like full body, like, 
or is there a baby step that they can take? Mm-hmm. You know? So two things, and this is such, I love talking about body image. Um, and I just love this topic. So two things, first of all, like we don't, a normal person that doesn't, and I use like normal, meaning like you've never experienced like any issues with whenever I say normal, I kind of like think of my boyfriend, right? Like he, he doesn't, he's never, he doesn't have body image issues. He doesn't have food issues. And when I think of him, it's like, how often does he look in the mirror in a day? Mm. Right. Mm. Like he probably (laughs) looks in it to do his hair first thing in the morning or to shave. And then that's probably it. Yeah. Right. And so we have to also take a step back and be like, how often are we looking in the mirror? And do we actually need to be spending this time in front of a mirror? Right. Mm -hmm. And I've noticed that too, in my healing journey as well. Like now I truly have not seen myself in front of a mirror since I did my makeup this morning. And of course I see myself on zoom now because I'm like sitting with you on zoom and my clients but outside of that I'm not going to a mirror to look at myself right yes this is life-changing right now because (laughs) I when I was in high school the thing was for me to go to the bathroom look at myself in the mirror you know just all the girls you know in there just kind of nitpicking at all the things that are wrong with them uh, you know we go out to a club at night in college like that was the thing look at yourself in the mirror take a picture in the mirror like all the mirror selfies that I took oh my gosh right <laughs> and now it's like I, I don't even look in the mirror unless I'm like you know brushing my teeth in the bathroom maybe yeah. doing my hair like for a purpose yes. and so yeah I think that just really relays the story of like how obsessed I was with how I looked on a daily basis sorry if you guys hear a dog barking in the background but yeah yeah exactly and I think you know so many of us have been I know I've been there spending so much time in a mirror. And so I think if we're at that part in our journey, if we have that awareness that, oh, wow, I'm doing that a lot, right? I'm not sure if covering up the mirrors or flipping the mirrors over or getting rid of your mirrors is the answer, but what if just spending a normal amount of time in front of the mirror, looking at yourself when you wake up in the morning to brush your teeth or wash your face or put your makeup on. And then after that, truly, what's the reason to look at yourself in the mirror? There, there really isn't much of a reason to look in a mirror after that. And so bringing your awareness to how much you're actually using the mirror, I would say would be really helpful. And then just going back to your comment about titration and okay, if we do have, you know, body image issues and we're learning to, create a better relationship with our body, right? Do we just like strip down all our clothes and stand in front of the mirror naked? 
probably not. That might not, that might be too much for you. Right. And so something that I actually did years and years ago, and I got this from a body image workbook (laughs) book. It, It was actually so helpful, but there was this practice where you would stand in front of a mirror, like fully clothed. So right now I'm wearing like a t-shirt and a hoodie. And so you would just and bottoms, of course, I'm wearing like um, but you know, you would stand in front of the mirror and just look at yourself, right? Just look at yourself as a whole. That's another thing that I um, teach my clients how to do. I really think we can train our eyes to see ourselves differently. And so just notice the next time you go stand in front of the mirror, do your eyes go directly to a certain part of your body? Just notice that, okay? And then practice, just see if you can practice just seeing your whole self when you stand in front of a mirror because I'm looking at you right now on Zoom, right? And my eyes aren't going specifically to any certain part of your body. I'm just seeing all of you, right? And I would say, at least personally, that's how I look at people. Like when my boyfriend walks in the front door, right? I'm not directly just like fixating on a certain body part of his, but is that what we're doing when we stand in front of a mirror, right? So can we teach our eyes to see ourselves as a whole, just as we do other people? And so that's like, this technique that I like using when we're doing mirror work, but going back to that example of like standing in front of a mirror fully clothed and just noticing how that makes you feel. Okay. And then once we kind of get to a place of feeling neutral around seeing ourselves fully clothed, because it might actually be activating for a lot of us. Right. And so if something's really activating, we don't want to start going further or deeper into something, right? So the practice is to stand in front of a mirror fully clothed and repeat that until we reach this place of feeling neutral around seeing ourselves like that, right? And then the next time, okay, I reach this place of feeling neutral around that. Okay, I'm gonna take off my hoodie now And I'm going to stand in front of the mirror with my biker shorts and t-shirt, okay? And maybe that's really activating to me. And maybe I have to do that for two weeks before I feel neutral around seeing that. And then the next step, okay, let's take that shirt off. And now we're standing in front of the mirror with our biker shorts and bra, right? And keep going from there. That was really helpful for me in that process of just like becoming familiar with your body again. Mm, I love that so much. Um, Wow. That's profound. And so once you recovered from this eating disorder, where did HA come into play? (laughs) So yeah, no, that's a great question because you mentioned HA at the beginning and we haven't even talked about HA. So I did lose my period when I had my eating disorder at 15. I honestly think I had my period like once or twice. (laughs) And then I had an eating disorder and it went away. So never really like 
a reg, you know, I didn't have it long enough to have a regular cycle, but I lost it when I had anorexia when I was 15. And I believe you can have an eating disorder and you can recover from that eating disorder, but your body doesn't actually fully recover yet. And for me, I honestly believe that it was so much of that like body stored trauma in my system that was preventing me from actually having a period again, because it wasn't until I started doing that, like somatics and parts work that I was able to get my period back. And I also had to do a lot of relearning around food as well. I wasn't restricting anymore, but I was eating intuitively according to my hunger cues, which we're pretty messed up after years of restriction, right? And so I started doing something called intentional eating. And I mean, I felt like I came up with the term intentional eating back in 2018. And now I see so many people talking about intentional eating, which is great. And what that looked like for me was being intentional about like having breakfast first thing when I woke up in the morning, even if I wasn't hungry when I first woke up and having snacks or another meal two to three hours after that. Right. And so I just, I kind of put intuitive eating over to the side, because I think if we go through like eating disorder recovery or any type of healing, like if you've ever struggled with your relationship with food, I think a lot of the times intuitive eating kind of is put up on this pedestal and people are like, that's where I want to get to. And I have no issues with intuitive eating at all, but I think it's um, a real struggle for those of us who are so out of touch with not only our hunger cues, but also what like a proper portion looks like. Mm -hmm. Right. And so bringing in that intentional eating and also doing my somatics and spiritual coaching and parts work. I got my period back. Now it will be soon, like three years ago, and it's been consistent ever since. And I just feel like the healthiest I've ever been, but yeah, that's kind of how HA falls into my journey as well. And I think that just going to the intuitive eating piece, um, when I got into this space, I've always said that there needs to be like a biological correction that takes place first before we get there. Like that's kind of like the, the graduation of doing all of this work, not only with our nutrition, but also the vagus nerve has to send is responsible for sending signals of appetite. Okay. Like I'm hungry and like satiety as well. So the intuitive eating piece is beautiful. And how many of us are probably struggling with some sort of some level of nervous system dysregulation and vagus nerve damage. And like, I mean, just little things like the way we sit and like the posture and like how, what that does to the vagus nerve. Um, and so I, I do think that the work that we're doing and just laying down proper nutritional ground and knowing what a plate should look like it's so much more actually i just shared some of my meals this morning and someone commented and was like uh i think i'm not eating enough <laughs> and i was like 
that doesn't even feel like a lot to me, but yeah, like, you know, little things like that, you know, are we having enough protein on our plates? Are we having enough carbs? And I was someone, I thought I was eating enough, but then I learned more about the metabolism and actually what our, our, my body just barely needs to breathe. And then what it needs to thrive is so different, right? Yes, exactly. And also, you know, if you're active and you're placing demands on your body, you know, like I did a workout this morning and I love strength training and lifting heavy. Like I love that so much. It's been my favorite form of exercise for years and I'm not always hungry after my workouts. Okay. But I always eat after my workouts. I always, always, always do. And that's just like another example of what intentional eating can look like because we're actually placing these extra demands on our bodies and our bodies might not always give us those cues of like when they need nourishment, you know, but we, we kind of have to be like responsible for what we place on our bodies. Right. So that's kind of how I think of it. It's like, okay, if I want to work out, I have to be responsible about that. Right. I think um, that's when the higher brain can come in the higher brain. Yeah. And that's when the brain does serve us our brilliant brains. Um, Our bodies are so wise and they feed us a lot of information. And we also have to, we hold that level of responsibility for our healing. So there, that needs to come into play as well. Um, And I felt like when I was really struggling with like morning appetite, I work with a lot of women who, just don't want to eat in the morning. And I realized that, oh, it's because my body is stressed or has been stressed for a a chronic period of time. But when I started like slowly just implementing things like maybe in a general cocktail or smoothie or like two eggs and like some fruit, my body just naturally was like starting to get hungry again. It's coming back by just intentionally eating, even when I didn't want to. And I know that's probably like, like, oh no, what are you doing? Like you're forcing food down your throat. Like, no, I'm giving my body what it needs. I know what it needs. It needs nourishment. It needs to be reminded that it is safe now. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I know. And like, for me, I've never been that person. Like if I'm not hungry, I don't feel like oh, I can't eat. Like I just, you know, like it doesn't feel like force feeding, but I know for some people it does, but I just wanted to throw out there that I think like there's a kind of like a belief or mental component to that, that a lot of women hold on to that they shouldn't be eating if they're not hungry or that they can't eat if they're not hungry. Right. So if there's that, we need to like recognize that and start rewiring that belief because like it's sometimes not like an element of them feeling as though like oh well I'm just not hungry and like food like does not sound good right now right but sometimes it's more of a thought thing that like they think that they shouldn't be eating if they're not hungry you know Mm -hmm. what I'm saying yeah and does that probably come from like childhood and yeah For a lot of people, I would say, you know, it's like, I guess we'd get curious, okay, where does that belief come from, right? And it definitely could be childhood, but like so much of our like society and diet culture are throwing those messages at us, right? So 
I mean, it's everywhere <laughs> to, so true. you know, yeah. Wow. Um, so you got your period back by just like really the somatic piece and then focusing on nutrition and eating enough about how many calories, if you don't mind me asking how, like, what was that sweet spot for you? Yeah, no, I love this question because actually like this was part of my intentional eating was just actually bringing awareness to how many calories that I was eating. You know, um, I had for so many years clung on to this identity that because I had an eating disorder in the past, I can't track my food. You know, I was holding on to this identity piece. And when I realized that I was doing that, I was like, oh, no, like that's that's an identity that isn't serving me right now. And I let go of that. And I was actually able to bring awareness to how much I was eating in a very like non-disordered way and just look at it as just straight numbers and like, okay, like what can help me what would be supportive for me right now so that was another huge like game changing piece in my recovery but yeah so if anyone's familiar with HA recovery here there's like Dr. Nicola Rinaldi she wrote a book it's called No Period Now What and so a lot of people read that book when they're going through HA recovery I was definitely one of those people I read that book and there's been studies that kind of like the average woman who is like healthy and thriving basically like eats 2,500 calories. And so that was like this minimum recommendation to get your period back. So I always had that as my goal as being like the minimum. And so I spent quite a long time, like my recovery, it was so crazy. I started HA recovery. It was like August, 22nd of 2018 and I got my period back like August 18th of 20 or 2019 so like almost exactly a year later it was so crazy but I spent a lot of time like using that 2500 calorie mark as my minimum to be at so I would say I spent a good period of time like very close to that number needing that But it wasn't until I actually started eating closer to, or I would say like 3000 calories, like averaging at 3000 calories that I actually was able to get my period back. So that's what I always kind of remind people, you know, we hear this 2500 calorie goal, but to really remind yourself that it is a minimum and not a maximum, because yeah, like it wasn't until I was a good 500 calories more than that, that I was able to get my period back. Mm. And what role did dairy play in this? Yes. So I also, over the years of like studying holistic nutrition, I was studying traditional Chinese medicine, which I find so fascinating. And something that had always really stood out to me about TCM was dairy being a building food. And so when I was approaching HA recovery and kind of thinking about, you know, foods to add in, I think like, you know, even when people talk about hormones and it depends like what community you're getting your information <laughs> yeah. from, right? <laughs> 
Um, definitely not like where you and I are coming from, that's for sure. <laughs> but there's a lot of messaging, like a confusing messaging around dairy and hormones, right? But something that really resonated with me from like a TCM perspective was that it's a building food. And basically like, that's what my goal was with HA recovery, right? Like building my body back into like this healthy, fertile, reproductive, like thriving body and also like building blood. And it just made a lot of sense to me. So I actually ate a lot of dairy throughout HA recovery. And I still do like dairy is the best. I love it so much. I eat it all the time. (laughs) And hopefully our listeners by now, I feel like we're just talking to one community. They have an understanding that dairy can be supportive, but maybe they pass this along to someone who's like, no, no dairy. Yeah. Um, I feel like most of your listeners know how amazing dairy is. (laughs) Yeah. They've probably given it a whirl and they were excited to do it too. Like, I can't tell you how many women, their shoulders like drop when they can, they're told they can eat dairy. It's like, are you serious? Like I can have like the things that our body just naturally wants they Mm -hmm. can have. And for so long, like we're getting into a dairy conversation now, but I'm here. So I restricted it because I was, I was like, I thought I was like lactose intolerant. I was like reacting very poorly to it and had zero idea what quality meant. And I had like all of this stress going on. And so there were a lot of varying factors involved in my inability to digest dairy as with everyone else. Um, And so what I started doing was binging on nut butters and my body was like so badly like craving this fat and I just remember like standing by this cabinet and just like spoon feeding myself like just nut butter like I just so badly wanted my body needed some fat soluble vitamins and so it got that in the form of nut butters and of course what happened my digestive issues proliferated I was gaining weight like crazy because like the just the excess consumption of hard to digest nut butters. I think nut butters like are fine. And like, I was just consuming them in like excess (laughs) on top of like the nut flowers I was doing, like all the seeds, everything. My body was just like in this extreme state of like puffiness. Like it just felt puffy all over. And then when I stopped that and I just finally got some raw cheddar, I was like, "Mm." like my body just it settled. I don't know how to explain it. I don't know if you know what I mean, but it's just yeah. really good for sure. Yeah. I mean, even there was like a inner child healing component to eating a lot of dairy. Like one of my favorite things to eat growing up was cheese. Like I love cheese so much. And yeah, like, I mean, going through HA recovery and my healing journey, there was so much like I wanted to bring inner child healing work into that. And so getting curious, like one of my favorite ways to integrate some inner child healing is like, okay, what were some of like those foods that just made me so happy when I was a child, you know, like what was some of my favorite foods and actually a lot of my favorite foods as a child were the foods that I wasn't eating anymore, Mm -hmm. right? Like cheese and cottage cheese were like some of my favorite foods growing up. And then 
integrating those back in, it was like, I could actually feel my inner child, like my inner parts, just like being so grateful that I was eating those foods again. So I think there was like that part to it too, you know? Oh, oh my God. This is sparking a light bulb. I have not thought of this. No. (laughs) Can you believe that? I think subconsciously though, like I'm connecting right now. Um, every day after school, my dad would make me a pot of ramen just to go straight from the bag. And one of my favorite recipes inside of my fall winter cookbook is my ramen. (laughs) I saw you post about it and it looks so good. I need to get my hands on that. Yeah. I think I actually shared the recipe to a reel. Yeah. Because it's like my favorite, like it's so good. And I actually haven't had it in a while. And now I'm thinking it's Friday night. My girl, that sounds so good. It's like raining here, so it's kind of chilly. I'm like, ramen sounds so good. Yeah, I think I'm gonna have to do it, and it's gonna just warm my insides up. And yeah, bringing that inner child healing component, there's just such a comfort within that. Um, I haven't thought about that, so thank you. (laughs) Yeah, of course. (laughs) Um, and for someone who is kind of like activated by tracking foods like what I know you were using it as like I mean downloading an app what was happening inside like what were you like oh no what's happening or did you already like get rid of that subconscious belief like I have an eating disorder so I need to not track my food yeah I feel like there's so many wow this is like a whole conversation but I think yeah prior to downloading the app, there was a lot of like, I shouldn't do this, right? Like I've recovered from an eating disorder. I shouldn't do this. And this is a disordered behavior and removing the judgment from that was really helpful for me. Right. Because I saw other people in my life that I wouldn't consider disordered in any way that were able to track their food just out of pure awareness of like where they were at, making sure that they were providing their body with as many calories that it needed, that they weren't under eating. Right. And so I was like, why can't I do that for myself? Right. Mm -hmm. And that's really where I realized, wow, I really am holding on to this identity that I can't do certain things because I've had an eating disorder in the past. And that really clicked with me. And I was like, whoa, what else am I not allowing myself to do because I've had an eating disorder in the past? Right. And it just like wasn't something that I was willing to hold on to before. It's like, well, if other people can do this, like I I honestly believe that I deserve to do this too. And so I did. And it was honestly one of the most helpful things that I could do because when going back to what I said before, like I had been intuitively eating and while I was doing that, I was unintentionally under eating, right? Like I was not restricting intentionally at all, but I was unintentionally under eating by not bringing my awareness to that. So I didn't even know what like 2000 calories looked like. Like I did not know how much food that actually looked like, especially after years of, you know, swapping out real rice for cauliflower (laughs) rice. Right. It's like, you have no idea. Okay. What's this? Like, what does a proper plate actually look like? Right. Because for so many years, it was like, 
meat and veg. So, okay. So how many carbs do I actually need to eat? Right. Because if I like, I didn't know, and it's not about like eating a certain serving size of rice. That's not what I'm saying, but I truly had no idea how to like eat in order to eat enough carbohydrates to get my period back. So I really just needed to allow myself to learn that again. And once I was able to bring my awareness and like gain that knowledge now, like, do I need to track? No, but I still bring that like element of intention to my eating. Like I said this morning, right? I do a workout. I'm not hungry after my workout, but I'm still going to eat after my workout. You know what I'm saying? <laughs> yeah. Yes, I know. I get it. Exactly. I used it as a tool myself just to be able to tune in. And, and I also, I should back up in college. Um, I'm sure everyone's kind of familiar with the whole, if it fits your macros. Yes. When eating, that was me huge into strength training, like really, really heavy lifting. I want to say that's when my digestive issues and food intolerance really intolerances really began. And I was at the same time doing if it fits your macro. So I lived on my fitness pal, but it was very disordered. Like, um, I would pair like protein with like Skittles, like just or no. And so I had that experience. I knew what like 20 grams of protein looked like. I knew what 40 grams of carbs felt like. Um, And also when I started like really nourishing myself, I did it again because I wanted to make sure that I was eating enough. And what did that feel like in my body? What do my plates look like? And then with practice, it just comes kind of like second nature and you don't have to do it anymore. Um, And it's really hard to meet your micronutrient requirements without carbohydrates too, because that's where I get a lot of my potassium, like from my root vegetables, from my fruits. And gosh, like just going back to the days where I used to fear fruit, I used to tell people to avoid fruit, it just breaks my heart. And like, I just finished an adrenal cocktail uh, or an orange dreamsicle, I should say, because there was heavy cream in there. Um, It looked good. (laughs) I just, I can't imagine not having fruit in my diet anymore. And I think, yeah, it just goes back to rewiring those beliefs, like what, and really tuning into the body and um, really quickly, I want to talk about like dissociation and what that looks like from like a diet culture or yo-yo dieting or yeah, perspective. Um, so like in what way? Like how I just feel like for me, I was so disconnected from my body. I was like dissociating from what actually was happening here. Mm-hmm. And I was just doing from like um, what society was telling me. You need to eat yeah. this, you need to do that so you can look this way. But I wasn't really sure about how everything was feeling on the inside. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. That makes sense. Yeah. I was definitely like felt that way too. And actually something that 
I had caught myself doing so many times. Like I was just constantly going outside of myself to like, I would just ask people their opinions all the time, right? Mm -hmm. Like on food and just like when I, let's say I wanted to eat something, but I would need to know like other people's like thoughts and opinions on the type of food, you know? And so just when I was just constantly doing that, I, I realized I was doing that. And there was always that, I think this also goes back to our parts work too, right? Like that there's like that firefighter protective part of us that is just like, Hey, I don't want to like feel this. I want, don't want to deal with this. So I'm just going to like go and do something kind of like outside of my body. So I don't have to feel this certain thing. And so I think like just hearing you explain that and talking about my experience with this, I'm like, wow, yeah. Knowing what I know now, I can reflect back on these moments and see how it was very much like also, like you can see it through like a parts work perspective through or that through that a type of lens like that. But yeah, for me, like I would say that it was a lot of like awareness of doing those actions, right? And noticing that discomfort when I wanted to go outside of myself to ask other people, or like you said, you know, doing what diet culture is telling us to do rather than doing what we want to do. And there's probably going to be that element of discomfort when we are wanting to jump outside of ourselves and not listen to what ourself is asking us to do. And what can be really helpful is noticing that discomfort, but then also finding a place inside, like creating a resource inside of ourselves that we can stick with, right? Because oftentimes when we feel that discomfort, and that's really why, like so much of the reason behind why we like go outside of ourselves and do what diet culture is saying is because we're not giving, we don't know how to stay with ourselves. Right. And we're kind of getting lost in that discomfort feeling. So um, what can be really helpful is creating that resource inside. So finding a place inside of you that even feels neutral, if not good, And a really awesome practice that I like using with my clients is seeing if you can stay with that place inside of you that feels neutral or feels good. And can we look at that discomfort? Can Mm -hmm. we look at it? Can we notice it being there while still staying with that part of us that feels neutral or good? Mm -hmm. And I think that can really help with like, that dissociation or just that urge, that feeling, that pull of going outside of ourselves. Yes, I love that. And and when you say that resource of the part that feels neutral or good, it just feels like, yeah, that part of the self looking towards, towards the part that is our protector or the little bits and pieces that are a little bit uncomfortable. And I just imagine like integration happening, like it's okay to be here. And like, I'm here to hold you. Like it's, yeah. 
I'm, I'm here. I'm not going anywhere. Yeah, exactly. I actually have had, like, this is just such an amazing client or an amazing practice, but I've had a client who she would get really, really bad migraines. And every single time she got a migraine, she would just kind of get completely lost in it. You know, her emotions would just come in, sweep her away, and she'd just get lost in everything. And it felt so overwhelming to her and like she just couldn't deal. And we did exactly what I explained. You know, we found that place that felt either neutral or good created that resource for us we like stayed there right we stayed with that feeling and we looked up at the migraine and that was honestly like I remember that session with her and it was so life-changing for her because she was always like in the middle of it right in the middle of the feeling and I know you do a lot of work with clients with like gut issues right and there can be a lot of like pain involved in that and we can get so caught up in that and so lost in that so can we find a place in our body that does feel good and if not good can we find just this place that feels neutral for us and when I say that like some of the common places that we can find that feel pretty neutral are places in our body that are hanging there. So like our earlobes, our boobs, our nose, right? Like parts of our body that just hang there. Typically we can find a place of neutrality in there. Even if it's just like the tip of your nose, you might find just like this spot of neutrality. And then if you are having that gut issue, okay, can you stick with that place where you're feeling neutral and just look down at that pain that you're feeling, right? Can we just observe it? Mm-hmm. And that can be like a huge game changer for those of us who feel like we're getting completely lost in that pain, whether it's like physical pain, emotional pain, that sort of thing. Yeah. Because I think the first thing that our first in- instinct and just coming from like an allopathic lens as well is to, there's a pill for every ill. And I think that kind of like, for me, at least when I entered the alternative health space, I was like, all right, what supplement? (laughs) Give me the supplement. It just had a different phase. And supplements do help move the needle. Like I'm not anti-supplement. I love supplements and thank God for them. Um, And there needs to be awareness of how we use them. Uh, am I, because there are supplements that are foundational and there are supplements that are just contributing to the d- dissociation and just like, okay, we'll just numb it. So it's not there anymore. Right. And sometimes that does, it, it, it serves and it, it's going to help as a bandaid, if you will, to just get things moving. So it, it's so nuanced. Yes. Every conversation is in the health space. Right. <laughs> um, <laughs> But I love that. I love that so much. Just looking, literally looking right at what's painful. Can we be with that, the parts that are uncomfortable, just as much as we are with the parts that are pleasant or neutral? Can we do that pendulation? Um, mm, I love this. I love this so much. To wrap up, is there anything that's on your heart to share with someone who's like, right in the thick of it, right in the mud. It's going through it right now. 
gosh, that they are going to get through it. You know, I've also been in that place so many times in my life feeling like I would never be fully recovered ever that I didn't even think that was a possibility for me. And I truly like with where my health is at now, physically, mentally, emotionally, I truly never believed that it was, or I shouldn't say I didn't believe that it was possible, but I didn't think that like true freedom, like the amount that I experienced today, I didn't know that that existed for someone who had had an eating disorder in the past, right? I truly did not know. And so I guess, you know, why I show up every day and why I do the work that I do is to show people that it actually is possible to experience that freedom and also experience that um, that desire, but also like the ability to show up every day and choose love for yourself. Like that's possible. So yeah, just leaving our listeners with that today. Mm, so beautiful. I love this conversation, Meg. It's so good. Thank you so much for coming on until next time, everyone. I hope you all enjoyed today's episode. If the episode resonated with you, feel free to share it with a friend and give the podcast a five-star review and rating as this allows us to grow and continue having incredible guests on the show. Thank you so much for your support. Until next time.